with Kate Chabot. Afghanistan, it's not over yet for British troops. Trump fires his FBI director. Who'll be next? Defence is top of the election agenda as Labour and the Tories trade blows. And Prince Harry's mental health crusade for the forces. Could Britain send more troops to Afghanistan? Yesterday, the NATO Secretary-General held talks with Theresa May at Downing Street and confirmed that Alliance commanders want to send thousands more soldiers there. Well, I'm joined by Michael Evans from The Times as well as Professor Michael Clark, former Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today. Uh, Michael Evans, to you first. Why does NATO need to send more troops? What's changed? I think what's changed is that uh, the American commander in Kabul wants more troops and he's made it clear that he needs several thousand. Most people are thinking that's probably between three and five thousand. But Washington's also made it clear that they don't want to be alone. They need more troops and they would like NATO allies to support them. So NATO stepped in and has sent a sort of, uh, uh, you know, letter round or whatever to everyone in NATO to say, can you supply more troops? And if so, let me know. So this could be three to 5,000 more troops. What would they be doing in theory? Well, let's get the numbers right. It'd be, it would be between three and 5,000 American troops, and then he would want a similar number, the, the Washington would want a similar number uh, from NATO. W- what they would be doing would be to be providing a lot more advice and assistance to the Afghan support, uh, Afghan security forces. But the trouble is when you send 3,000, 6,000 troops, they're not all going to be in that category. Some of them have to be sort of backup office people, support troops in that sense. So whether that's enough, uh, I don't know. But if they've got a pretty good number of people to aid and abet the Afghan forces closer up to the front line against the Taliban, it, it could could make a difference. But I think it probably uh, you need a hell of a lot more than that to make a big difference. Professor Michael Clark, when President Obama left office, it seemed that he was pulling back from Afghanistan. Yes, but, but even then it pulled him in. If you remember that um, Obama took power and uh, became, became president in, uh, what, 2008, and he spent a year worrying about it and then reinforced with the surge in 2009, still didn't manage to really get out until 2014, and that was a bit too soon. And I think a lot of commanders have said, you know, good or bad, the Afghan operation was wound up before the job was really done. And so here is the danger again that what, what, what dogged Obama may now well dog President Trump. Mm. And just bring us up to date with exactly what is going on on the ground in Afghanistan, because I understand it, there are about 19 other groups trying to topple the Afghan government as well as the Taliban. Yes, I mean, we all talk about the Taliban, who are much more fractured than uh, people tend to believe. And then there's uh, our friends from ISIS, uh, so-called Islamic State, who have made some inroads, certainly in the north. There are some uh, some unity talks going on. So some of the warlords are, as, a, as it were, coming into the government. Hekmatia, uh, uh, people like that, are, are now beginning to make pacts. It's typical Afghan politics where people start to swap sides according to how they see the situation moving. But one thing that isn't happening fast enough or completely enough is the consolidation of government power. The government's the biggest player, but there are so many other players that the danger is the government will simply lose control and be nothing but one of the players. And that, in a way, is what the Americans now want to avoid. Otherwise, that would represent strategic failure in Afghanistan since 2001. Michael Evans, what must be done to avoid... uh strategic failure? 
Well, the important thing is to have a proper objective. Uh, if, if they do send more troops, they've got to decide what they want to produce at the end of it. They're not going to defeat the Taliban. So anyone who thinks we're going to win, uh, they, should, they should drop that. The, the thing to avoid, as Michael says, is strategic failure. That would be a total disaster after more than 16 years. So I think uh, the objective must be to give the Afghan security forces a bit of time to recuperate. They've had a lot of casualties. They need a lot of backup. And the backup should come from the American and other forces who can supply guidance and perhaps some equipment too, because all the major equipment, all the major enablers, as they call them, the people who supply communications and logistics and intelligence were withdrawn under the Obama administration. Some of those need to come back to provide, if you like, a backbone for the Afghan security forces. Professor Michael Clark, how much of this is about uh, international forces led by America trying to stabilise Afghanistan? How much of this is a bigger picture about America wanting to keep some influence in this part of the world? Well, interestingly enough, because I think H.R. Um, McMaster, the um, uh, National Security Advisor, and Jim Mattis, the Defence Secretary, they, I think, both see a bigger picture here because China's one belt, one road strategy to build this you know, reverse Silk Road right through Central Asia into Europe is a big strategic game changer. And I think the Americans understand, or some Americans understand, that if they're not in Central Asia, they will be actually kicked out of it. It's not a neutral area. And the Russians think the same. And so that there's a sense behind this that if they are seen to be unreliable allies of the Afghan government, just as if they're seen to be unreliable allies of the Iraqi government, if, if the Americans don't count anymore, they will find that they will be just kicked out of areas that matter to them by this immense Chinese ambition to create this new one belt, one road by sea and by land to really unite East Asia and the Western world. Michael Evans, do you see it this way? Is this what's at stake? I totally agree. Uh, it, it's it's key to this whole uh, strategy, sort of uh, review that's been going on. Is uh, do we need to play a part still in this area of the world? And obviously, we do. Trump needs to be uh, uh, persuaded of this argument, but I, I expect he will be persuaded. He's very st strong supporter of both Mattis and McMaster. Uh, yet, it's key to that. And uh, the important thing is, as as you were saying, is to show that we, the West, support the Afghan government. They need to be continued to be supported. Uh, I know it's been a long time, this war, but there's a lot of work still to be done. Mm, and do you think Britain can actually do what's requested of it if it is to supply more troops? I think if they supply more troops, it's going to be in very small numbers. I don't think it's going to be hundreds. I think it'll be more like dozens. And I think that's the same with uh, other NATO allies. No one is going to come up with thousands more troops. I think it'll be very small doses. But as long as they're decent troops, good troops, the right troops to, to, to do the job, then I expect uh, Washington will be pleased. But I don't think they're going to end up with... Uh, 10,000 troops altogether. I don't think mm. that'll happen. This coming at a time when Britain is reaffirming its commitment to, to another mission, that in Somalia, Professor Michael Clark, mm. how, how, how successful is that mission going at the moment? Just bring us up to date on that and what we can expect. Well, uh, Somalia is not actually as bad as it might have been over the years. There is a, there's a sort of, the Somalis are quite good at looking after themselves and Somalia that used to exist in 1990 up to 1992 has now c collapsed. But we've got three Somalias now and the, the danger for us with Somalia is not that they can't run their own affairs but that they're wide open to terrorist infiltration and so the the um, uh, summit that's been held today on Somalia that the Prime Minister is chairing 
chairing is again it's a donors summit to try to build some proper infrastructure in Somalia the security is a separate issue the African Union is taking a, a lead but Britain is always interested in Somalia not least because quite a, a high proportion of our terrorist suspects turn out to be Somali or Somali origins of people living in Britain Mm, all right, Professor Michael Clark, stay with us. But Michael Evans from The Times, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Still to come, Labour and the Conservatives trade blows on defence and Prince Harry's mental health crusade gets results. You are hereby terminated. That's how President Trump told his FBI director he was fired. He's only the second commander-in-chief to do so. Simon Marks from Feature Story News joins us now from Washington. Hello, Simon. Um, Hello, Kate. Unusual, isn't it? A president has every right to do so, though, hasn't he? Well, a president does have every right to do so, but uh, this president uh, may have done so without fully understanding the political implications uh, of the seismic move that he was about to take. Getting rid of an FBI director is not like changing Secretary of State or deciding that you want someone new at the Department of the Treasury. The FBI director is appointed for 10 years uh, and uh, there has to be a very, very serious reason for moving against him. Indeed, only in recent memory did Bill Clinton fire an FBI director, William Sessions, back in 1992. And that was over allegations that William Sessions had misspent public money and only came after Bill Clinton spent several days urging Mr Sessions uh, to resign. This is an altogether different situation, one in which President Trump says he has fired the FBI director because of his handling of the investigation last year into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server when she was Secretary of State. The President's detractors say that's nonsense. If it was the case, Donald Trump would have got rid of James Comey on day one in the presidency. They argue that he's uh, guilty of obstruction of justice because he has essentially removed from office the man who was the fulcrum of the investigations into whether the Trump campaign team last year had ties with the Russians. Mm, Professor Michael Clark, is he obstructing justice in doing this and is that punishable in any way? Well, if it looks as if he's obstructing justice to a majority in Congress, then it's punishable by impeachment proceedings. I mean, we're a long way from that at the moment. But you know, it's it's typical of, of uh, President Trump that he doubles down on all these things. He's under increasing pressure over the Russian allegations. Let's just call them that because they'll dog him for a long time. And in a way, he gets out of it by escalating the whole thing, by creating almost a constitutional crisis in what he's done. And I was struck by the fact that the letter and the way it came out and the timing, it had all the hallmarks of the sort of... The sort of tweet that somebody or email that somebody sends at three o'clock in the morning when they've had too much to drink you know I'll get rid of you you're finished and it, it wasn't quite that we know he doesn't drink that in that way but it had the look of a really impetuous act by a man who didn't think through what he was doing and I agree absolutely um, that, the, that he doesn't know what he's taking on here and remember even if he gets a new FBI director who says I'm not going to pursue this issue the House and the Senate still have committees who are looking at exactly the same issue so it's not going to go away mm. unless he handles it he can cannot bully his way out of it unless he handles the issue and somehow puts it to bed then it will dog him and I think that's almost certain to be the, the future for certainly the first four years of, of this presidency or hang on him like a bad suit. Simon Marks um, you're in the thick of it in so much as you're in Washington what was the feeling there at the moment? 
Uh, I'm not sure we're going to get through the full four years of this presidency. I mean, I think the overwhelming (laughs) feeling in Washington is, honestly, how much longer can all this go on? I mean, when you look at some of the scenes that have played out here over the last few days, the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, hiding at night in bushes in the White House grounds. You're joking. No, in a bid to evade questions from the very reporters to whom he is supposed to be accountable as White House press secretary. Subpoenas are Flying. We've now know we've now learnt that uh, the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, uh, very much a target of all the investigations that are taking place here, he's now been subpoenaed by the Senate Intelligence Committee. That means he's being forced to provide documents to the Senate Intelligence Committee that he previously has refused to provide. And at the end of the day, the biggest problem Donald Trump faces is that this is rapidly spinning out of his own personal orbit of control. When you've got people being subpoenaed by committees that are co-chaired by Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill. Donald Trump knows he's lost the Democrats, but there are Republicans now in the U.S. Senate wavering in their support for this president. At that point, we're heading down a very slippery slope and absolutely anything could happen. Professor Michael Clark, I mean, it's better than an episode of the House of Cards, isn't it, which is due on again soon. As- I was about to say, I know Michael Dobbs reasonably well, and next time I see him, I'll tell him, you are far too tame. I mean, yes. what's the matter with you? I mean, Sergei Lavrov, uh, the, from the Russian defense, well, defense minister, was, was meeting Donald Trump. I wonder what those conversations would have been about. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations. I don't know. I mean, Lavrov, you could see, uh, yesterday, he tried to play the, the diplomatic role by saying, is there an issue I didn't realise, I hadn't heard? And there was a real twinkle in his eye. Um, and the fact that, you know, President Putin then makes a statement just before he's about to play a game of ice hockey. Mm. I mean, you, you really... I, I'm, I'm sure back, he won. Yeah, I, I, I'm <laughs> sure he did. They let him score. But, I'm, I mean, you really couldn't make this stuff up, I say to Michael Dobbs. You couldn't make it up. Mm, Simon Marks, what do you think will happen next, if you care to predict? Well, all eyes are on the Senate just over the next few days. I mean, a whole series of hearings that could see James Comey, the ousted FBI director uh, testifying in a closed door session at which Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee will learn a lot more about the circumstances that led to his firing. Did he indeed request Mm. more money for the probe into the Trump team's uh, possible ties with Russia? Uh, What did he feel about the fact that the president so arbitrarily dismissed him? And how are FBI agents reacting to all of this? The White Mm. House said within the last few hours, President Trump is going to make a visit to FBI FBI headquarters, Mm. they have maintained that James Comey lost the confidence of FBI field agents. There is not much evidence to support that view, and it will be very interesting to see if he goes to FBI headquarters, what kind of reception he receives there. Oh, one, that... one thing, Kate, in all of this, you know, that the, I mean, this is re- this civil war that is, is really now broken out in intelligence matters in the States is really bad for the intelligence relationship that we have with the United mm. States and with mm. everybody else because, essentially, nobody knows who they're now dealing with yes. in the US and everyone's being very cautious. All right, Professor Michael Clark, stay with us. Simon Marks and Feature Story News, thank you for your time today. Thanks. Now, Labour and the Conservatives have begun trading blows on defence in the election campaign. It comes as a draft of Labour's manifesto is leaked. James Hurst is our correspondent in Westminster. James, what does Labour's leaked draft say about defence? Well, it all feels very tame after all that, <laughs> that stuff about the, the FBI. And, and to be honest, there is no huge surprise on defence in here. There is stuff uh, relating to the Armed Forces Covenant. The, the big one that everybody looked to, 
Trident, and it simply says Labour's commitment uh, is Labour supports the renewal of the Trident submarine system. That is long-standing position. It hasn't changed. However, there is a huge nod to Jeremy Corbyn's long-standing anti-nuclear position. It goes on to say any Prime Minister should be extremely cautious about ordering the use of weapons of mass destruction, which would result in indiscriminate killing by million uh, or killing of millions of innocent civilians. It then talks about Labour as a government pushing for multilateral disarmament. Uh, the party's election coordinator, Andrew Gwynn, you know, is, is, is trying to downplay this as an issue within the party. The matter of multilateral nuclear disarmament was settled in the Labour Party a long time ago. It has been reiterated at Labour Party conferences recently as last year. Labour Party policy is clear and that's why it's in the manifesto. And James, the Conservatives have reacted? Of course they have and they've said what we've heard from them many times before. The Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon was doing the rounds for the Conservatives this morning saying effectively any defence pledges from Labour were meaningless. He's essentially a pacifist and would be a very uh, dangerous leader, I think, of our country if he was ever put in charge of our defences. You know, if you've got armed forces, you've got to be prepared to use them. And James, talk about NATO spending targets too. Yes, so the Conservatives tried to play the defence card last night, 12 hours after Theresa May had met the NATO Secretary-General. We got a, a statement in the name of the Prime Minister committing the Conservatives for five more years really on their current spending plan. So meeting the NATO 2% and uh, a real terms increase of about half a percent a year uh, from Labour, what their... Um, draft manifesto is saying uh, repeat, restating Labour's commitment to spending at least 2% of GDP on defence, pointing out that the last Labour government consistently spent above the NATO benchmark of 2%, but they're only effectively making one of those two promises that the Conservatives are making there. Mm. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, what else has come up defence-wise in campaigning so far? Uh, really, it's all about images. Um, the, the, and as James said, the, the interesting thing about the Labour approach is that they're trying to get around this idea that, yes, they have to make all the traditional commitments to defence industries, to defence spending and to Trident, but they want to stress how reluctant they are to use them and that force should only be a last resort. And this wonderful phrase, it said that the, the leader should be extremely cautious in the way that they use nuclear weapons. Well, <laughs> Like, I, like I would, no one else is, yeah. Absolutely. I would <laughs> certainly hope they are. Um, so we've got all that. And then the Conservatives, really are trying to argue, of course, that you know their hands are safest at the defence helm as the country sails towards its Brexit destiny. And that's an image that they're trying to create. And what Michael Fallon said this morning, um, as James said, I mean, uh, you know, putting another 500 million, or ha rather half a percent, uh, into defence over and above inflation is about, if you work it out even on the back of an envelope, is about the 500 million they're already committed to. And so what this morning's announcement did was just extend that commitment from 2020 to 2022. Mm. So that that's welcome in its own sense, but it isn't making a whole lot of difference. And I suspect that until some issue arises, uh, either a foreign crisis or something comes to light on Trident or on the purchase of uh, F-35s or something like that during the campaign, we'll just go on trading images that the, the Labour Party want to review defence and think that they can do it more humanely, and the Conservatives will just say these people are not safe on defence. And James, what are the other parties saying on defence? Oh, well, we've got none of the big manifestos 
Tories to refer to, but the Scottish National Party saying today that the Tories can't be trusted on defence, that their commitments should be taken with a pinch of salt because they say the Tory record on defence in Scotland is shameful, pointing to things like base closures. You have the former Lib Dem leader uh, Paddy Ashdown attacking the Conservatives for previous cuts to the armed forces, uh, not pointing out, however, that a lot of the, the cuts he's talking about happened in coalition with the Lib Dems. And Paul Nuttall, the UKIP leader today, uh, he chose to focus on attacking Jeremy Corbyn and he told a, a party launch, we all know that Jeremy Corbyn would have surrendered Gibraltar to the Spanish and indeed the Falklands to Australia. And then, <laughs> and then one of his own MEPs in the front row had to go, I, I think you mean Argentina. I think that's what round here we call a gaffe. James Hurst in Westminster. On that note, thank you. We'll leave it for now. Now, Help for Heroes says more armed forces veterans and their families are seeking help to combat mental health issues following campaigning by Prince Harry and other members of the royal family. The charity says take-up of its Hidden Wounds service, which supports those suffering from things like anxiety, depression, stress and alcohol abuse, has more than doubled since 2015. And it says there was a particular surge in interest after Prince Harry described how he struggled to cope with the death of his mother, Princess Diana. Well, let's talk to Sir Simon Wesley, Director of the King's Centre for Military Health Research. Good to speak to you today, Sir Simon. Has Prince Harry speaking out really had that much of an effect? Well, I don't think we actually know, but it wouldn't remotely surprise me, given the extraordinary reach that he has had, not just in this country, but around the globe. But I think it's too early to say um, just how large that has been, but I, I, you know, just just common sense suggests that this is likely to have had an impact. Yeah, and j- just how long have you been working uh, on this subject, the mental health of veterans? How many years has it been? Almost for as long as I've known Professor Clark sitting next to you. So uh, <laughs> most most of my career is the answer. <laughs> Thank you, that. Simon. <laughs> That's okay for for well over twenty twenty five years. And yeah. how how far do you think we've come on this? Well, I think we have. I mean, um, we know far more now about the physical and mental health of the UK armed forces than we've done before. We've been following up um, the health of those who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And all this began, in fact, after the first Gulf War in 1991, where we singly did not follow up um, those issues and got ourselves into all sorts of trouble around Gulf War syndrome and things like that. So we've definitely moved on from that. We've moved on both in the armed forces, but even more in society as well. You know, we're talking about the election at the moment. We now have all three parties squabbling about who's going to do more for our mental health services. I mean, that's great. You must, yeah, you must be rubbing your hands together. Uh, absolutely, yes, we are. You, yeah. you talk about the aftermath. I'm just wondering, in, in all your research and the work you've done, have you learned anything that, is there any way that anything can be done to prevent mental health problems, specifically with people for, perhaps who go into combat? Well, there's huge amounts that can be done and indeed are being done and have been done for a long time. I think sometimes what we've done is just put some kind of statistical uh, gloss on this. But, for example, we've shown that one of the biggest impacts on mental health when you're in Afghanistan, and we've done a lot of research out there, is the quality of the leadership and cohesion in the units that you're in. Now, I don't think that comes as a shock to many people listening to you, um, but a lot of professionals like me in mental health forget all that, and we were just simply able to show that actually had more impact than uh, action by the Taliban. 
Similarly, the quality of training, which is universally regarded to be you know, pretty high in the British Armed Forces, also has a huge impact on this. And one of the reasons why the rates of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, are are actually remarkably low compared to what happens to civilians exposed to similar levels of trauma. So you do a lot of things very, very well. You just don't call that mental health, and you probably shouldn't, but that's what it is. And in terms of the, the physically, the body, when it's in that constant situation of fight-or-flight mode, is there anything that can be done to protect it from the effects of what must be huge surges of adrenaline, which must be difficult to deal with when you come back to a civilian environment? Well, there's two things. First of all, as you've just said, those, quote, huge surges of adrenaline, I think it's a bit more complicated than that, actually, but it, it is I know, a I'm like just a that. civilian now. I know, I know. Don't worry <laughs> I haven't spent but 22 years a, on but this. But clearly, that's a damn good thing. You know, when you're in those situations, that's exactly what you need. But you're quite right that some people find it difficult, you know, when they're back in, in a in a non-hostile environment to kind of reduce those levels, they're still very jumpy, alert, etc. Um, mm. So the kind of reactions that are incredibly helpful in, you know, in combat and, and, and in hostile environments are not always quite so good when you're back with your family or you're back with your friends or you're back on the streets of Sheffield. Um, and we can do various things. To be honest, medication, if that's what you're getting at, is probably not the best thing at that situation. The commonest medication people use is alcohol. And although that certainly helps in bonding with your mates, it's not a good way of reducing anxiety. In the long term, it, it, it does worse. So if you're, the, the second thing to say, this is completely normal. This isn't pathological. Mm. This is what happens to people when they come back from this kind of environment. And we mustn't go around saying, oh, gosh, you all need mental health help. You all hmm. need to see things because you don't. You only need to see, seek help if this goes on for longer than you would expect gets in the way of your life, gets in the way of marriage, gets in the way of work, etc., then maybe it's becoming a problem. Perhaps, perhaps I could finish that one by saying we're just publishing some new stuff looking at the positive impact of deployment on stress. Yes. Half, half of the people who come back, they say, as a result of my deployment, I'm actually able to handle stress better. You know, this has and been a positive experience. Indeed. And interestingly, Professor Michael Clark, in the case of Prince Harry, it was actually going to the front line that uh, made him confront some of the issues with his bereavement. Yes, and uh, a lot of armed force personnel say that. And they also say that, um, you know, you, you, you then go into industry or you get, you leave the armed force and you go and do something else and somebody comes rushing in um, in the middle of the afternoon saying the PowerPoint's gone all uh, useless for tomorrow and we can't do this and we can't do that. What do you think? Well, if you've had, you know, if you had a platoon to look after in life and death, chances are you can cope. Chances are. I mean, I was just, oh, that's absolutely right. I was just talking in the city yesterday on this very issue. Um, and we must be very careful that we don't go around painting our veterans, our ex-service personnel as, you know, in somehow difficult, damaged, demoralized, dangerous drug addicted, when most of them are none of those things. Mm. And they have learned to cope pretty well in, um, you know, tense, difficult situations. So, so, Simon, where do you think the work needs to be done in this area? I think there are two things. I think actually... That last point, I think, is almost one of the most important ones, that we mustn't create a distorted view of ex-service personnel that maybe might have happened slightly in America, that we see them for exactly what they are, people who've you know, done a good job in good circumstances, have now left and are ready to do good jobs again. We have to look after the minority who have been damaged by their military service, both physically 
and mentally and of course the mental is the more difficult one I have to say and we have an absolute duty to do that but we mustn't go around saying that everyone is a victim because that's not true any more than everyone is a hero which also isn't true. All right, so Simon Wesley, you're our hero today. Thank you for coming on, Director of the King Centre for Military Health Research. Thank you for your time. Um, Germany's armed forces are to be purged of remaining symbolic links to the Nazi-era Wehrmacht, and troops will be given political education after the discovery of a far-right plot to kill the country's president. Well, the education programme was announced by the German Defence Minister, who has been under pressure to act after the arrest of two soldiers and a civilian over plans to attack prominent figures linked with the welcome for refugees. Professor Michael Clark, I'm worrying all of this. Yeah, it's a very difficult one this because the Defence Minister, Ursula van Leyen, is in real trouble um, because, in a sense, the you know what the Bundeswehr was trying to do is to say, you know, we, we've rehabilitated ourselves, we're a completely new force, and after the early 1980s, from 1982, then it was acceptable for the, for the Bundeswehr to have memorabilia from the Wehrmacht, from the old wartime German army, which was a very, very good army, no question about it. And, in a way, this has now fallen foul of right-wing activism across Europe, so the alternative for Germany, the ADF people, and some you know, really sort of pathological characters seem to have seized on this. And it looks as if there are three people accused of uh, getting into the German armed forces with the intention of trying to set up a plot to so assassinate the So a small problem president. that has quite, quite uh, big ramifications. Big ramifications, it does. It does. And I think the Defence Minister is under real pressure. I mean, she may be fighting for a job. Mm. And this is a one-off issue, but it's sim- symbolic of the fact that Germany still finds it difficult to throw off all of the Nazi past. I I understand some barracks are still called Rommel. What would you rename them if you were to? Oh, I don't know. I, I think you'd have to call them something quite neutral, something political, but at least they're not called Himmler. <laughs> yeah, OK, Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. That is all we have time for. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. I'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.